One thing that I've slowly, over the years, gotten better at or, or accepted is that that uncertainty, that insecurity, will probably always be there to some extent, and it's almost like being okay with that insecurity, being okay with moments where you're like, oh, I I wonder what am I going to do in the past like three months where I still have a job, where I still have clients wanting to get me to do recipes for them. Will will there be? People so interested in what I do six months, one year, two years from now. So I guess the lesson is that that worry will probably always be there. It could be a very low worry at the back of your head, but I think it's okay to worry. I think that's the lesson. On today's episode of the Explore This podcast, we speak to Yijun Lo. Jun is a food writer, a podcaster, and a recipe developer based in Malaysia. Having earned his cooking chops in Paris and New York, Jun transitioned into the world of food media and food writing and now shares the food culture of Asia, especially Southeast Asia, on multiple mediums. He runs a gamut of gastronomical projects, from producing Take a Bow, a narrative Asian food podcast that gives voice to the underrepresented food stories of the region, sharing cross-cultural cooking and recipes on social media and his website, Jun and Tonic, to writing about food culture and history for publications like Sevier and Food 52. This episode is one filled with so much food for thought, pun intended. Sit back and enjoy. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Welcome, June, to the Explore This podcast. We're so happy to have you on board with us today. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for having me. All right, June. So for some of us who don't know you, let's kick things off with you sharing with our listeners about your journey. As you know, here on the Explore This podcast, we celebrate unconventional career journeys. And I have to say that yours is pretty unorthodox and a very adventurous one, to say the least. So Jun, you graduated with a chemical engineering degree from Cambridge and went on to pursue a culinary career. And in other words, you traded your steam tables and cat drawings for a lifetime of glorious gluttony. I think something that we all are secretly envious (laughs) of. Could you share with us more about yourself and what this entire journey was like for you? Yeah, I think you're right in pointing out, you know, how different what I studied was to what I currently do. But yeah, just as an introduction, I am a food writer and recipe developer. That's what I currently do right now. So I graduated by doing chemical engineering and it seems like a big shift going from like chemical engineering to food. But back then in the moment, I don't think it was as big or intentional of a decision as it might seem to be. So in hindsight, I would say, I think looking back at the decision that I made, then I was just probably doing things that I actually like and making decisions that brought me joy. And and again, this is all in hindsight, right? So in the moment, I was just like, oh, I, I think I'll try this, try that. So after chemical engineering, I was like, hmm, I don't think I can do a nine to five work at the chemical engineering company, like oil and gas or, or pharmaceutical company. I also did the typical engineering thing of considering going into consulting or investment banking. Very, very typical engineer. But I I think I did a few interviews, but I realized pretty quickly that perhaps I wasn't cut out for that or, or that wasn't what I want to do for like long or medium or long term. And so I just toyed with the idea of going to culinary school and learning to cook, to be honest. Because I knew back then that cooking and eating especially brought me a lot of joy. So then I was just like, oh yeah, how about I just spend like 
you know, six months, one year learning to cook, I'll, I'll have gotten a life skill out of it. And, you know, if it doesn't turn into a career or doesn't turn into anything more, I can always go back to more conventional career choices, I suppose. So yeah, that's how the decision was made back then. And I guess the rest was, yeah, the rest is kind of history, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I'm so curious, right? Because you say that you followed a couple of decisions which led you to where you are. And again, all this is on hindsight, right? But, you know, how did that discovery or your love for this culinary field even happen? Take us through that journey or how have you been tinkering with that interest of yours? Well, yeah, I don't have a ideal, well-packaged backstory. You know how a lot of food people, they're like, oh, I used to help out in my mom's kitchen under the table. And, and pick at all the little things that she made or like I helped my mom like fold dumplings or make pasta or stuff like that. Yeah, and I never had any really vivid memories like that. But for me, it was more like I, I only properly learned to cook and got into cooking and, and food and appreciating food in uni. So I think it was like a second or third year. I had a really cool roommate. He, he was a Singaporean and he just was really into food. Then this was what we did over weekends. And, you know, when friends came over, we would cook for them random things. Sometimes it's just like, oh, we just, you know, act like fancy cooks and and stuff. Although our cooking was not so good back then, but we just try it. And, And the process itself was really fun. Just experimenting in the kitchen and really playing around with food. And so I think that was when I really got interested in it. And, and that then informed my decision later on to actually turn it into a career. Mm. I gotta say, your friends are super blessed. (laughs) Seriously, they must have been so glad that they were friends with you and being treated to some amazing food as much as they were also guinea pigs, but still, you (laughs) know. Back then, back then it wasn't great. Yeah, I think the food was very experimental or interesting, right? Or or people might say when when it's like (laughs) subpar. (laughs) So actually, I want to revisit that moment where you decided to move from engineering to pursue culinary. And of course, all of us here, we are Asians and coming from an Asian background, I would assume that that decision might presumably invite lots of questions or maybe even some pushback from well-meaning friends and family who may ask things like, why are you giving up your engineering career to move into culinary? So I'm actually curious, how did your family or friends react when you made that decision at that point of time? Mm, I think... In terms of family, yeah, I must say I have really supportive parents and I'm really, really lucky to have them. So when I first told them that I wanted to try out cooking or or, or perhaps like try pursuing a career in, in cooking, they were, of course, they were worried as is natural to them, like a natural, typical parent instinct, like you want your kids to do well and this whole food and beverage industry, there's a lot of kind of yeah bad things associated with it and and the pay isn't that much and there's not a lot of job security as well i suppose and so they were very worried but they told me okay we'll give you one year to feel it out and see whether it's something that you actually really want to do or is it just like a phase sort of thing and in that sense i think within that one year i slowly realized that oh this is something that i actually really really like doing and i really could turn it into a career and so by the end of the year i think they were pretty okay with it But yeah, I definitely did receive comments outside of my direct family from just like random aunties or friends or friends who found out about my backstory and, and, oh, I did chemical engineering at Cambridge and then now I'm doing food, right? And I remember an auntie was saying like, why are you wasting your degree? It's very typical Asian mindset, right? Back then, it did make me feel like quite insecure 
And I did have a lot of doubts as to, oh, am I really throwing away what I learned for four years, you know, a master's degree? And then after that, what what am I doing? Where am I really headed? And, And that made me think quite a bit. But over the years, I think that has sort of ironed out and I'm slowly gotten more secure about what I'm doing as well. Mm. Mm. How do you wrestle with those thoughts? As you said, these words, they eventually, even though you knew that you had a passion for the cooking arts and you eventually did go to Le Cordon Bleu, right? What was the thought that sort of pushed you forward to still pursue it, even though there were naysayers and people who pushed back and, and made all these comments and even with coupled with your own anxieties and s- struggles about it as well. I think it goes back to that feeling of this thing brings me joy or, or makes me happy doing this. So when I look at, I mean, there's the typical career progression a lot of people go through. Okay, they go into a maybe a high paying job or a very secure job. Again, you know, one, one of those career paths that, that I could have chosen, maybe I could have gone into consulting or, or investment banking, stuff like that. And I would have a very, very secure future. But in a lot of these career paths, you see them after a while, they will leave their jobs and go pursue something that they are more interested in or, or, you know, seeing how those careers panned out. I was like, huh, let me try flipping the script and, and picking the passion part first before I, I pick the job security. And, and I have to say, it definitely didn't start off as a passion. I, I think this whole business about, oh, you have to find your passion or pursue your passion. I think it's a very, sometimes dangerous mindset to have because oftentimes in the beginning, especially I felt like, oh, I'm not sure if this is my passion, but I'm, I read somewhere or I probably heard a podcast somewhere saying how passions are often developed rather than found. That was certainly true for me. It started off as like an interest in food that slowly over time, as I got more and more into it, I'm like, oh, I like this even more. And perhaps at, at some point in the future, you can sort of label it a, a passion. Yeah. I'd like for you, June, to walk us through your journey then from the university and then deciding after graduating that you wanted to pursue culinary school, then what was that journey like? And yeah, what led you to where you are today? I would say... The whole Le Cordon Bleu journey was kind of like me trying to make up the loss years for not helping out my mom in the kitchen, learning how to cook, not understanding food from a young age. I was like, okay, I think I need a fast track, kind of like a crash course to learn how to cook to an acceptable level. And it was a very short period. It was nine months in total. And being at Le Cordon Bleu, it, it, yeah, it certainly like gave me a lot of very basic French cooking techniques and you get really like proficient at that. Mm. But it's nothing like going into a restaurant, going to work in the industry though. As you will commonly hear from people in the food business, they will often say that, oh, going to culinary school is not enough. If you want to make it in the food industry, you have to actually, it's it's going to the restaurants where you get the true experience. And then that journey led you to live in Paris. Share with us a little bit about that. Yeah, so actually Paris was still part of the Le Cordon Bleu journey, actually. So I did six months in London and then three in Paris. And Paris was actually, it was my first time living in a place where English wasn't the primary language, right? I had to learn the basics of the language. Don't ask me to speak French, I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I was but, just going uh, to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I and, and it was a really cool experience learning about their culture and learning about their food, especially because you always hear, like, okay, French food is often regarded as the, the mother cuisine. And so many of our modern techniques in food and cooking today stems from French cooking, right? Although that's not now slowly changing, but 
a lot of it is is still based upon the French techniques. Yeah, it was really a, a huge like learning experience and just absorbing the the culture and food. Yeah. What was something that you liked or didn't like about your time there in Paris? So I traveled to Paris for a trip. I think this was probably in my second or third year or something like that of uni. And I didn't like it so much. Maybe it's because like, oh, it was just a short while there. So you go to the typical touristy parts and you also get to see like the bad tourist traps, dark underbelly of, of Paris and stuff like that. But when I lived there for the three, four months that I was there, I was in this really cute neighborhood. It was like a market street. And I think I just love being so close to all these super fresh produce. Every Sunday, they will have almost like a farmer's market sort of thing along this main road. And even during weekdays, there's a cheese shop there. There's fresh fruits and veggie shops within a five minute radius around my my house. So it was really quaint and, and really cute. Yeah, the whole experience of it. I love it. It reminds me of the good times uh, spent in like Europe in general when you're talking mm. about it. And so I'm curious that entire journey brought you to work at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. So can you paint for us a picture of what it was like working there? And for some of our listeners who might not know what exactly is the charm of Blue Hill at Stone Barns, maybe you'd like to share with us? Yeah, so after Paris, I yeah I went over to uh, Blue Hill. And for those who don't know, Blue Hill at Stone Barns is a farm-to-table restaurant. And the chef there, Dan Barber, is often regarded as like the father of the farm-to-table, nose-to-tail sort of movement, at, at least in the US. And if you're familiar with food in, in the West Coast, there's like Alice Waters and a restaurant. But on the East Coast, is yeah, Chef Dan has been like doing some really cool work with regards to farm-to-table eating. And so the way I found out about his restaurant was through reading his book, essentially, The Third Plate. I I read it during my time in Taiwanese school and I was like, oh, this place sounds like really, really cool. And they're doing really interesting stuff, not not just with farm veggies, but they're also doing really experimental stuff with stuff like non-gavage or non-force-fed like foie gras or things like pigs who are fed on kitchen waste or, or all those like trimmings and stuff. And they also do breeding programs with a squash that they call the honey nut squash. Researchers from Cornell and get a squash that is three times as sweet as uh, regular like butternut squashes. So all these things made me really, really curious about this restaurant. And then I kind of just like applied there as a stage, which is kind of like a, almost like an internship-ish. I ended up being there for six months and yeah, I learned a whole bunch because when you hear farm to table in Malaysia, at least it's often like, oh, maybe the vegetables or the fruits or or whatnot comes from Cameron Highlands, right? Which is what, two hours away from the restaurant in KL or PJ or, or wherever you're at. But at Blue Hill, it's literally right next to the farm. So you can go out the door and it's literally attached to the farm. And the farm is like super big. It's it's almost like a collaborative effort between Chef Dan and the farmers around the whole New York state as well and, and beyond. And so they do, yeah, really, really cool experimental stuff like like the ones that I've I've mentioned there. Mm. I gotta say, this restaurant is on my list, but I'm actually curious, you know, because I've actually watched Chef's Table where he was actually Ah, yeah. Right? And there was this quote he said that stayed with me, something about if it's not perfection, I'm not gonna serve it. Something along the lines of that, like I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you know, with that quote, it makes me think of someone who is very perfectionist and definitely, of course, with the stature that he is, he definitely would serve food that is only 
to his standards. So what was it like working with someone like Chef Dan? Uh, I mean, he was a presence in the kitchen, I would say. Like whenever he's an, at service, everyone is just, like, just a bit more tense, a bit more focused. And so especially when it comes to more traditional chefs or, or chefs that, that came from a more French culinary background mold, they are usually super, you know, their dishes being like, inch perfect but the thing is when it comes to working at blue hill i didn't really have any bad experiences in terms of like (laughs) nothing was thrown at me fortunately but uh, but yeah from him i learned actually a lot so much about this kind of wave of dining that he's trying to push for and we would have stuff like learning sessions once or twice a week the farmers would come and explain like oh what uh, we've done at the farm today, maybe some weird experiments that we were doing. So taking the example of the honey nut squash that I spoke about just now, which is like three times as sweet as butternut squash, right? So every year they would have to kind of like pick the seeds for it and they would often get the chefs to to taste out of all the different squashes that perhaps like mutated out of last year's bunch. We get to pick the seeds and, and pick the squashes that we like the best for the best characteristics. Yeah, so stuff like that, it makes you really in touch with not just the food that you're eating on a day, but also in touch with the the whole food supply chain, the food system, right? Like your producers and farmers as well. It sounds like you had a very, very wholesome, you know, and very enlightening experience at Blue Hills. And would it be fair to say that that experience cemented your interest and passion in pursuing the art of culinary when you moved back to Malaysia? I think it definitely like contributed a, a whole lot. I, I did probably paint a very nice and wholesome picture there, but it's also actually very, very stressful. There are days that it will get like, super crazy stressful and like tempers will flare in the kitchen. And so this, this is what I felt like. I, I didn't want to be there for years, right? That wasn't what I wanted to do, like be a chef's chef almost. So that's why I turned my eye to food media and, and, and doing more of the things that I like within this food space. So rather than grinding it out in the kitchen on a daily basis, sort of like cooking like the same dishes over and over again and like perfecting them, I just wanted to play with food, to be honest. Every day, you know, I get to play with different things, different ideas or different recipes that I am curious about. Now I just like, oh, maybe I should try doing a recipe. And and I can't do that if I went down the whole restaurant route. That's why I then switched over to doing more food writing, food media, that, that sort of thing. That's a perfect segue to our next section where we want to explore more about your whole ventures of the food media where so far, but benefit of our listeners who do not know already, you came back and you were on the Breaking Bread segment on BFM and you also host your own podcast, which is Take About. It's a fantastic podcast celebrating stories of Asian food and my favorite one was uh, the one on Kopitiam so be sure to check it out uh, listeners if you haven't checked it out already so we'd really like to hear more about your journey on food media and exploring all those wonderful things that you said right besides the of course the excitement and being able to experiment and be really playful in the kitchen and delighting all of your followers as well with all the recipes that you've experimented with was there anything that worried you or scared you when you initially embarked on this uncharted journey yeah, I think it was definitely pretty scary back then. And even now to an extent, because coming from, you know, the background of having gone to culinary school and then becoming a chef and then now going to food media, not many people have done this sort of career transition before. And so there was no blueprint for it. There was no career path of someone that I could follow, that I could like look up to. So that was the scariest part for me and i guess i was a very typical like asian good 
good student sort of thing. So in your typical learning or like education system, it's, it's always on rails, right? You have a certain, okay, you have to, if you get like A's, okay, you get into a good uni. And then if you, if you do well in a uni, you get into a good job. But then when I chose to go into food, it's almost as if I deliberately came off the rails. And so now there's no set path in front of me. It's like, okay, I could go in any direction that I wish, but I also am unsure which one is the right one. So initially I did struggle with that a lot, not having a guide, not having a, like much knowledge on, okay, should I go into becoming maybe a food photographer or going into more becoming a food writer, a full-blown writing about like the history and origins of food, or perhaps going into like research or a, a doctorate about food, right? And so there are all these paths. And I guess the one I chose, it, which is, well, I didn't, Again, it's not as if I deliberately chose the path. It was more like, oh, I think I, I like finding out more about the history of food. And so I also like listening to food podcasts. So I kind of like combined the two and that's how Take a Bow came to be. And then stuff like, oh, I, I like, you know, creating weird recipes, experimenting in the kitchen. And so that's how the whole blog came to be and how I started doing more video content as well. Touching back on what you said earlier about passion being romanticized, it is true that it can be quite romanticized, but the fact that you are following your interests and leaning into your curiosities, generally over time, I think it shows, right? Your passion, your interests, it shows to all of your audience, the ones who are following your content, and that causes a grow in listenership and people begin to validate your work. And it's kind of like a knock-on effect, right? And then when you get that sense of encouragement from people, it validates that, okay, this is what you're really good at. And, and you are good at what you do, June. Mm, yeah, it's like you and your podcast, though. No? When you hear good things about it, you're like, oh, I feel so fulfilled by this. <laughs> <laughs> we we can definitely resonate. And I also have to congratulate you on that crazy 15-hour potato recipe that you recently did that <laughs> a million views. A huge congratulations oh. on that. I'm sure it was worth that 15 hours and more. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, it's not my recipe. Yeah. The recipe itself has been done like so many times before. And I just, cause I've never tried it before. It's essentially like layers. Yeah. For, for, I guess for the listeners, it's essentially a layers of potatoes that you, so you slice them into really thin layers and you stack them together and kind of bake them low and slow and then deep fry it. So it becomes really crispy. And I've never tried this particular recipe before. And so, yeah, it was just something that I wanted to try. And it kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why it's so appealing to people, but it kind of blew up. It has over a million views. I'm not sure how because my follow count is nowhere near that. But yeah, it's kind of crazy. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> June is being modest, but he does have a very impressive followership. So <laughs> I, I have to put it out there. <laughs> but June, I have to say that I love that you're not just a food writer or a chef, but you are a recipe developer and you really take pride in your love for Southeast Asian food. And that it's evident through both Take a Bow as well as the Breaking Bread segment on BFM, our local radio station. And I have to say, I think I reached out to you on this as well. I personally try one of your recipes, the miso carbonara. It was my first time buying miso just to try that recipe. I've actually never really bought or cooked or experimented with anything miso related, um, but I loved it. It was very um, unique for my entire family just because it was a new ingredient altogether, but I used it once, really liked it, and then it's it's been sitting in my... <laughs> So it's, it's a kind reminder for me to, to get back on it as well. While I haven't been as bold to experiment, I have to say that your recipes are very unique, weird to some, <laughs> cookie, uh, but truly one of a kind. And so from the peanut butter and jelly filled bowls to tapioca cake 
oozing with Spanish caramel and some of the crazy mooncake donuts that you've tried, some of which might or might not be given a thumbs up approval by by some of our ancestors, our grandmas and our grandpas and all these, you know, things that you're doing. I have to say that you're not afraid to challenge conventions and rules. So talk to us about what has influenced your approach and where do you actually gain these inspirations to produce such creative recipes? For most, if not all of the recipes that I do, It often starts off with my own curiosity for anything that I do. And maybe this is a very self-indulgent view. I want to be curious about this before I actually like share it with people. And it's almost like a criteria for me. I want to be interested in the flavor of a certain weird dish that that I might be creating or I want to be interested in like a, a story that I'm going to write about. Uh, before I actually write it and and not just like do it for the views or for clout or, or whatnot. In that sense, that is where it often starts. But where I get inspiration from so, so many places that I get inspiration from, from really pro restaurant chefs doing cool stuff. I saw a video, I think it was like last week of this Italian chef in New York. His place is called Restora. And, and he made a pasta that is shaped like a sunflower. And it was inspired by one of his trips where there was a lot of sunflower that he saw. So I was just like, oh my God, this guy is so, so cool. Like, the pasta itself literally looks like a sunflower. That's like the, the black seeds and then it's like a yellow petals outside. It looks beautiful. Oh. So like stuff like that inspires me. But over the years as well, there are many food bloggers and, and writers that have inspired me in, in equal amounts. Like Mandy Lee, who runs Lady and Pups. Her recipes are, are so, so cool. Some of the iconic ones are like Mapo Tofu. She turned it into the hummus and Laksa flavored paella. Yeah, so things like wow. that, like very in tune with what I love to eat as well. So every time I see her recipes and her photography is like super amazing. So every time I see that, I'm just like, how do you come out of this, Mandy? Yeah, super cool. Oh, I was just going to ask you, you know, we're thinking about all these seemingly very counter-cultural combinations. I'm just curious to know, you know, has there been a combo that you have tried that just did not work out at all? <laughs> hmm, did not work out. I think there are, there, there, there's probably plenty. Or maybe I just like block it out of my mind. <laughs> but, <laughs> but one that, okay, this one, I know it doesn't work in my head, but I've never tried it before. So there's one quote that comes to mind like right now as we think about this. One of my old chefs from Le Cordon Bleu, he was saying there's nothing as a bad flavor combination. Two things can always go together. You just have to find the right way of putting them together the the right amount the right balance of of flavor and perhaps like even pair them with like a third or fourth ingredient to to balance everything out so in that sense i think i have internalized that mantra almost so i won't ever say no to any combination but one that i feel like it it probably won't work but i have not yet tried it's chocolate and fish i'm like hmm that doesn't work oh. in my head but Oh, I would be neither does to it work in our heads as weird. well. <laughs> Oof. It, I'm not sure it works in our heads as well. Like literally the reaction that Janice and I gave you, it, it's literally that. Yeah, I know, right? I know. <laughs> but that that is what makes it like so fun and so interesting as well. It's like imagine if someone could make a dish out of using chocolate and fish that actually works, right? You'll be I think so just, like challenge accepted right amazed. now. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it has to be accepted, not just by yourself, because sometimes if you made it, you might be absolutely biased, right? But yes, yeah, I mean, sure. if you find <laughs> someone who can 
you know, mix fish and chocolate together and come up with a very delightful dish. Hook us up. We're very keen to try. We're huge foodies ourselves, so we would love to give it a go. <laughs> All right. So actually, we're going to segue into uh, a bit of a career question because a lot of our podcast listeners are, you know, people kind of around our age have worked for about maybe four to five years. And some of them at this cusp of trajectory have decided, okay, you know what? Enough with the consulting life. Enough with the investment banking life. They are itching to maybe try some Thing that's a bit more unconventional. So I think your life story definitely there's a lot of nuggets of wisdom, right? Pun intended. So <laughs> we actually like to, you know, pick your brains. What is one lesson you would say that your career has taught you, your very unconventional career, which you'd like to share with our listeners who may also be experiencing similar unconventional callings? Well, that's a big question. Hmm. And I'm not sure if I'm in a position to like give like good advice yet but i think one thing that comes to mind is this whole deal with insecurity or like anxiety right because in the beginning of going into this whole food career i did feel a lot of uncertainty a lot of anxiety about what i was doing whether you know it was because of pressure from my peers or family friends or whatnot or perhaps just worrying about my own future one thing that i've slowly over the years gotten better at or, or accepted is that that uncertainty, that insecurity will probably always be there to some extent. And it's almost like being okay with that insecurity, being okay with moments where you're like, oh, I, I wonder what am I going to do in the past like three months where I still have a job, where I still have clients wanting to get me to do recipes for them? Will, will there be people so interested in what I do six months, one year, two years from now. So I guess the lesson is that that worry will probably always be there too. It could be like a very low, like worry at the back of your head, but I think it's okay to worry. I think that's the lesson. I'm I'm not sure if that's very good advice, but yes, that's what I feel. No, I think that's I think that's great advice. You know, a lot of times we might be worrying about the three-year plan on the five-year plan or even the 10-year plan, but it's important to know that it's fine to worry. It's fine to feel moments of uncertainty, but as long as you're guided by a strong desire to, you know, explore a particular curiosity and of course taking a risk is fine, but you have to take calculated risk as, mm. as well, right? And at that time when you took your risk, you did it knowing that, okay, I have certain um, securities, I have certain your know, plan Bs, even you, you, for you, if that was a path that didn't work out, you could always go back to engineering school. But yeah. I think it's you know fair to say now that you're definitely sparking a lot of joy in your kitchen and also in the kitchen of <laughs> others like Sarah, myself. <laughs> and, in, in, and in the tummies of the people who get to test out the food that you make after you put it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> who are those lucky people? It's mostly my family, really. They get to try the most like experimental stuff that I make, yeah. Yeah. So on that note, June, I'm curious, what is the surprising discovery about this offbeat and colorful career journey that you wish you knew earlier on? Oh, that's an interesting one. What surprises? Hmm. I mean, we all say that everything is hindsight on 2020 upon reflection and things like that. And that certainly is true for Janice and I, right? Coming from law and then doing our MBAs and now pivoting to both HR as well as tech respectively. A lot of things we look back and say, wow, we're glad we said yes to certain things and that's how certain doors opened up. But yeah, if there was one surprising discovery that you wish you knew earlier on, what would it be? Mm, I think it's that I could do this because I think back then I wasn't sure what this career could amount to. But looking today at what I'm doing, whenever I'm in the act of creating a recipe or just messing around in the kitchen or editing a podcast episode that I'm really like engaging with, 
I'm in that state of almost like the state of flow that brings a lot of joy to me. And I wish back then that, oh, I could achieve this without having to worry so much. Yeah. Because back then, I, I guess like, oh, I, I was very worried about, oh, what should I do? Will I really make a career out of this? But then if I knew that this could be a successful thing, I could save myself a lot of like worry, I, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> we totally understand at the time of doing either a career pivot or a lot of that uncertainty might sometimes eat us up but it's only when you say yes to certain things and you are where you are today that you look back and feel that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction to know it was going to be okay like good job yeah. you you know you made it this far and, yeah. and there is a lot of potential for future opportunities that will open up yeah for sure and but again this is all in hindsight right so like oh i wish i knew it back then but then if you knew it back then maybe you wouldn't be where you are today also yes <laughs> yes a hundred percent a hundred percent one other question that i have for you june is can you share with us what is a day in the life of june what does it look like oh i feel like it's sometimes it's quite chaotic but i try to implement a, a schedule or a sort of work pattern if you will so on a weekly basis i will come up with like maybe three or four new recipes, cook them, edit the videos for them or write them out as perhaps a blog post. And then when I had my, my podcast season, podcast episodes will be a part of that as well. So on a weekly basis, I'll try to like split my days into like cooking days and video production or writing days. So it really depends on which day it is. But if it's a cooking day, then I'll spend most of the day in the kitchen, just cooking up storm relief. But if it's like a process or writing focus day then I'm, I'm just more in my my room like writing or editing recipes do you ever get writer's block i'm just curious you know because writers sometimes they have this moment where they're just stuck on a script but as a food writer what do you do when you get if you do get writer's block what do you do oh i get it so much i get it so much because when i compare my writing to like so many other food writers out there I, because i do so many different types of food content i feel like I'm more like a jack of all trades. And so when I look at all these like masters of food writing, people who have just really honed their craft in writing, I cannot compare to them. So that also gives me some sort of like writer's block sometimes. It makes me feel like my writing, It when I read it, it's like, oh my God, this cannot compare to all these great writers out there. But some things that have helped me when I face that is just like reading other people's material or reading other recipes, perhaps just like picking up a cookbook and flipping through it, getting inspired from that, I think really, really helps me. And so on that note, which is your favorite or I would say proudest recipe that you've developed so far? Oh, <laughs> so this is a question I get like. I've gotten quite a few times and I always say it's the mooncake donuts or I call them like moon donuts because I really, I was really, really proud of that idea. And I still am because essentially for, for those who don't know, it's essentially like I take the, the fillings of a mooncake. So lotus paste and also a bit of uh, salted egg. And I turned those into very runny, like custards and then pipe them into a donut. So it's not like the donut with the hole in the middle. It's like the filled donuts or like a bombolonis. And yeah, so I piped the lotus paste in and, and the salted egg custard in as well. And it just, it, it works so well. Oh my God. The first time I had it, I was just like, <gasps> I made this. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, that, that's one that I would always say. But more recently, actually just last week, I made something that I was super proud of. So it's based on a fruit cake, but I'm never a big fan of fruit cake. Because fruitcake usually, you know, it's very, it's overly sweet and very cloying. And it has the very typical, very conventional fruitcake 
at least the ones that you find in Malaysia, they have a lot of colored cherries in them. And I really don't like those. So I kind of riffed on that. And instead of all the typical dried fruit fillings for fruitcake, I used dried Asian fruits. So I did stuff like dried longans, dried persimmons. I even put some like Korean pear in there. Yeah. So just like work that in into a fruitcake. And I had some... Wow. Uh, like fresh once it was done. It was, it was pretty good. And then I, but I soaked some more in rum and then I'm like aging it for Christmas. Oh, perfect. Uh, and I'm really excited for that one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Just send us your address after this. Janice and I will be right there for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to come over. Yeah. <laughs> so June, I got to say, this whole conversation has been so eye-opening and has left us hungry. Very, very hungry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> itching to try your recipes in the kitchen when we have the chance and as you know we're wrapping up right now one question that we do like to ask our guests at the end of every episode is what is the one thing that you would like to explore more of Hmm. i don't know i I think in 2022 i've set myself up to like explore a lot of different half hobbies of mine well so they're not like proper hobbies yet but i'm like oh i'm interested in this so i want to learn stuff like skateboarding or like dancing probably not a very conventional answer to to what you're looking for but yeah these are oh we welcome it so (laughs) yeah what do you have you've got dancing you've got skateboarding what else yeah dancing skateboarding Mm, maybe get into like f45 properly which janice you do right (laughs) yeah i heard janice does like f45 on a daily basis I think and it's about time uh, F45 sponsors. I know. <laughs> Promo code to be released in the script. Yeah. So, well, now I realize it's very kind of physical activity based. So that's what comes to mind when I think of what I, I'm going to explore in the coming weeks and months. And where can our guests find you for those who don't already follow you on social media? Well, beyond social media, yeah, you can find me on Spotify. You can listen to my podcast, but also I have a website, Jun and Tonic. Uh, dot com. I'm I'm also just in case I'm Jun and Tonic, J U N and Tonic. Yeah, it's kind of like a bad play on Jun and Tonic. But we love it. We love it. <laughs> All about the puns, right? But even when I explore this as well. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder as well. Like, is that something that? So whenever you say, "Oh, I want to explore something," do you then think to your podcast? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and we kind of get a little nudge every time people say something explore related, you know, <laughs> like that association. But yeah, mm. June, it's been such a delightful conversation. And I just wanted to wrap up this episode with a few things that I've taken away and I'm sure Janice has as well. I love how you talked about flipping the script and making sure that you had the approach of picking the passion first before the job security, which is definitely food for thought, especially for some of our listeners who might be on that unconventional calling path as well. Second thing is on how passion is developed, not necessarily found. For those who found your passion well and good, but otherwise it's definitely something that I think is developed. And I love how you also talk about despite not having a blueprint of what the rest of your career might look like and despite dealing with a lot of insecurity, it will be okay. So you learn to say yes a lot and you leaned into your curiosity and it definitely seems like there is still a lot more of curiosity that you will be exploring more of in the coming new year. Yeah, I hope so too. And yeah, I just want to say thank you as well for inviting me on for this uh, really fun conversation. So thank you so much, June, for taking us on your gastronomic adventure from Cambridge to the kitchen and even behind a microphone on your podcast. You are truly on the path to make 
waves in our Asian food scene. So we look forward to that. So we wish you all the very best in your quest for this culinary curiosity and cannot wait to see what else you have in store for us. So for those who haven't already, give June a follow on Instagram and all social media at June and Tonic. Thank you so much, June. Thank you. Thank you so much. And all the best with your podcast as well. Yeah, I've been listening to some episodes of yours and you are so good, honestly, like so, so polished. Like being <laughs> someone you, who, who also does podcasts. Yeah, it's great listening to you guys. All right. Thank you, June. We'll see you soon. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then! 